On About Books, we delve into the latest news about the publishing industry with interesting insider interviews with publishing industry experts. We'll also give you updates on current nonfiction authors and books, the latest book reviews, and we'll talk about the current nonfiction books featured on C-SPAN's Book TV. And welcome to About Books. Now, in a few minutes, we'll talk with a public school official from Mason City, Iowa, who found herself in the national spotlight this summer over her effort to comply with a state law about age-appropriate books in school libraries. But first, here's some of the latest news from the publishing industry. The 92nd Street Y Cultural Center in New York City recently canceled an event featuring Pulitzer Prize-winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen after he signed a letter critical of Israel and the ongoing war in Gaza. In a press statement, the center said that, quote, given the public comments by the invited author on Israel and this moment, we felt the responsible course of action was to postpone the event. Now, the New York Times reported that after the decision, several other writers scheduled to appear at the 92nd Street Y canceled their events in protest. The Y subsequently announced that it was pausing its well-known literary series for the 2023-24 season. In other book news, the 2023 finalists for the Kundil History Book Prize in Canada were recently announced. The annual award, administered by McGill University in Montreal, recognizes the best in history writing and comes with a $75,000 prize. This year, the finalists are Tanya Brannigan for Red Memory, Living, Remembering, and Forgetting China's Cultural Revolution, James Morton Turner for Charged, A History of Batteries and Lessons for a Clean Energy Future, and Kate Cooper for Queens of a Fallen World, The Lost Women of Augustine's Confessions. And finally, Penguin Random House revealed that the next book from best-selling author Eric Larson will be released in April of next year. The book is titled The Demon of Unrest. It will focus on the election of Abraham Lincoln in 1860, the April 1861 bombardment of Fort Sumter, and the outbreak of the Civil War. Quote, drawing on diaries, secret communiques, slave ledgers, and plantation records, Larson gives us a political horror story that captures the forces that led America to the brink. That's according to Penguin. Now, Eric Larson has written eight books, six of which have become New York Times bestsellers. His Devil in the White City was a finalist for the National Book Award. And now a conversation with Bridget Exman, a local school official from Mason City, Iowa, who went viral this summer over her efforts to comply with a Iowa state law over age-appropriate books in school libraries. And now on Book TV, we want to introduce you to Bridget Exman from Mason City, Iowa. Ms. Exman, what is your profession? I'm the assistant superintendent for curriculum and instruction for public schools here in Mason City. And what does that entail? Basically, it means I uh, provide all the oversight for all of our programs and everything related to teaching and learning here. Well, recently, you wrote a New York Times op-ed, and the title of that op-ed was, This Summer, I Became the Book-Banning Monster of Iowa. What happened? 
Well, uh, districts here in Iowa got put in kind of a difficult situation based on some legislation that was passed during the last session um, and had a really tight timeline to comply with a, a change in what we're allowed to have in our school and classroom libraries. And the the process that we used here in Mason City drew a lot of attention. And ultimately, people were pretty upset that we ended up pulling some books from the shelves in our classrooms and our, our school libraries. And now I take it this is the parental rights law that says that schools in Iowa are now required to offer age-appropriate books that do not include any descriptions or visual depictions of a sex act. Is that correct? Yep, that's the one. So how did you go about pulling books off the shelf? So just for a little context, um, in a district our size, we have nine schools, um, which means nine school libraries, and then hundreds of classroom libraries. And the process of trying to figure out um, which of those books might contain a single description of a sex act was was pretty daunting. So we ended up by starting with a, a compilation of several lists of commonly challenged books, went through and filtered those lists to eliminate those that are challenged for reasons other than sexual content, and then further narrowed that list down by the books that are actually contained within the searchable collections of our school libraries. Uh, from there, I actually went to AI, ChatGPT, and asked the question of using the letter or the language of the law, does, does this book contain a description of a sex act? And if I got a yes, then I put it on a list um, to be pulled from our shelves while we engaged in some further review. The further review was going to um, sources like book looks and common sense media to verify that there was a description of a sex act in those books. And I was able to do that with all but about five. And those remaining five books, we actually went through and either read or reread to make a decision about whether those would remain off the shelves or whether those would go back into our collections. Now, in your op-ed, you wrote, quote, there are no winners in the game of censorship. I'd argue that we used AI, artificial intelligence, to try to keep books. What point were you trying to make there? So, you know, the criticism certainly was in the removing of books at all. And, and I don't, that's not something that I want to do. I'm a former English teacher. Um, I, I taught and loved many of the books that we ended up having to pull from our shelves. But because districts were with this really short timeline to try to figure out how to be in compliance with the law, and because the law actually holds individual teachers and teacher librarians accountable for violations, uh, we were all kind of scrambling to figure out what to do, and districts took a, a wide variety of approaches. There were some that that cut a pretty wide swath and pulled any books that um, contained any sort of reference to sex or any that were questionable. There was one district that pulled 400 books. I didn't want to be in that situation, and so I tried to think through ways that we could narrow down and, and ultimately keep books on shelves. And, and for me, that was that step of using um, AI to find the books where at least I could have a defensible way of, of keeping a book on a shelf and limiting the number that were going to get pulled. Do you think that using chat GPT and artificial intelligence was successful? Um, I think yes. You know, I, what I know now looking back is 
tool is not designed for that purpose. But at the end of the day, we got the books. I think we, you know, we identified the books that that were the right books and we didn't have to pull extra books in that process. So uh, maybe I would land in, in, in saying the means justify the end. Now, or the end justifies the means, sorry. Now, Bridget Exman, were you supportive of the law passed by the Iowa legislature? No, certainly not. Um, and, and this has been a move, I think, that relative or similar to some other moves that that ultimately are trying to legislate things that really aren't a problem. Um, there, you know, there was this perception among some that our school libraries are filled with pornography and and that we needed to be legislated or managed in order to act appropriately and remove pornography from our shelves. Um, and, and that's simply not true. And so the unfortunate reality here is that we ended up pulling what I would say are some pretty incredible literary works because the law was written in such a broad and uh, confusing or nebulous way that we never had porn on our shelves. We still don't. And now we've pulled books that probably do belong um, in the hands of our students. Why did you become the book banning monster when all the districts in Iowa had to do this? So uh, I think you put together the combination of censorship with artificial intelligence, with state legislatures acting in um, kind of eyebrow raising ways, and you will definitely be a lightning rod for attention. Um, the news went of our process went really spread really fast and really far, and I think that is what put the attention really on our district. When ultimately, I, I think we're one of the districts in the state that has pulled the fewest titles of, of any. Now, what about parents? What? What rights do you see parents having when it comes to books on school library shelves? So um, in our district and in districts throughout the state of Iowa, parents have always had the right to uh, tell us that they don't want their child to read a certain text, that they want an alternate text provided. Um, Certainly we're very transparent with books that kids are checking out. And our philosophy has always been that as a public school district, our job is to make information and make uh, works available to our students and then to let our, our families make a decision about where those lines might be. Um, and we have a formal process in place where parents can compel us to reconsider whether a, a text is appropriate. Um, I'm relatively new to this district, year three for me, but my admin assistant has been here almost 25 years and she can't remember ever having a formal book challenge in this district. So parents do have a voice. They do have rights. Uh, we believe in those. And so far, what we're seeing is that our parents are satisfied with the books that are available. Now, Bridget Exman, Mason City is what, 40,000 people? So you're part of the community. What was the local reaction? We saw the national reaction on social media, of course. So locally, really wide support. Um, This community is one that does support our our public schools very strongly. Um, I've been here just long enough that I think people could trust that if there's a process in place, there was a reason for it. And people understand the the local and the state politics enough. It was really outside of the state that people were really alarmed about what was going on here. Now, there was another headline that we want to share with our audience. This is from the Cedar Rapids, Iowa Gazette. Buzz Bissinger blasts Mason City Schools' ban of his Friday night lights. North Iowa City relies on AI in banning of 19 renowned books. What happened with Friday night lights? 
So the good news is Friday Night Lights is back on our shelves. So um, AI didn't get it all right. That's why we didn't rely completely on uh, ChatGPT to make those decisions. We did make a human you know, decision. And there were three books, two of them that ChatGPT was simply wrong. Friday Night Lights, um, as well as Killing Mr. Griffin by Lois Duncan, just don't have any sexual content in them. Um, and then the third, um, uh, Sherman Alexie's Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, when we really dug into that one, you know, what was there doesn't meet the letter of the law the way that it's written in Iowa. So we were able to put some books back. Um, I've actually uh, have had conversations with Buzz since then. He's been great to to talk to. And ultimately, his reaction and his influence is part of what gave us the positive outlet with the New York Times and, and other sources to be able to draw attention to what's happening here in Iowa and how it really is problematic. Did you invite Mr. Bissinger to come visit Mason City? I haven't done that. I, I should do that. Um, what books did end up coming off the shelves? Oh, I won't remember them all off the top of my head. Um, I, I know Kite Runner was one. There were um, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, um, Beloved by Toni Morrison, um, Jody Picoult's 19 Minutes. Um, Gossip Girl. Um, ugh, there's no way I'm going to remember all of those titles. Now, those were taken off the school library shelves. Are, are they available in the public library? They absolutely are. And do you think that Beloved should have been removed from school library shelves? I don't. Why not? So, Beloved, in several of those texts, um, I didn't mention Alice Walker's The Color Purple, um, The Color Purple, uh, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, Beloved, all of those are texts that where the, the, the excerpt that caused them to be in violation of the law has to do with child sex abuse. And um, I, I think there's an argument to be made about whether that's, you know, an act of violence or whether it is pornography. And certainly I would argue that that's not pornography. And our students um, are fully capable of interacting with and learning from and experiencing vicariously other experiences that they don't have personally, or there's great value in, in having your own experiences represented in literature. Um, and pulling those things really limits our opportunity to do one of the, the core functions of reading literature, which is to experience the world through somebody else's eyes, which we hope grows empathy and common understanding in, in our world. Bridget Exman, you mentioned that you're a former English teacher. Did you ever teach any of the books that ended up being banned? I did. I've taught Beloved. I've taught The Color Purple. I've taught Friday Night Lights by H.G. Bissinger. Um, I didn't teach Sold by Mac Patricia McCormick, but it was one that several of my students read and enjoyed. Um, and I would say most of the books are books that I had students read and enjoy. Did you ever have a, te uh, a parent come in and complain or question your choices? Not about any of those books. I can remember having parent conversations about other texts. Um, uh, Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain was one that I remember having conversations with parents about, but none of those. So have you reached out to your Iowa legislator about this law? Um, locally, I've had conversations with our legislators um, I am hearing, you know, I can I, I read what's what's coming out of newsletters and such, and it sounds as though um, maybe there's a, a perception that districts are interpreting the legislation 
too broadly or more broadly than the legislators intended. So I am hopeful that maybe we'll see a, a revisiting or a clarification, or I'd honestly be really happy with just even administrative rules, which we normally get from our Department of Education. And in this instance, the Department of Education has told us that they don't intend to provide administrative rules, um, which leaves us all kind of out here trying to figure this out on our own. So Bridget Exman, what is the right way to question a book if it's on a school shelf? I think the right way to do it is, um, first of all, you know, to, to, to have that voice really belong to parents, right? If you are a parent of a child who's actually in that school, then you should have a voice. Um, and the right way to do it is by starting with a conversation with your with your child, right? Here, this is a book we don't want you to read and here's why. Um, and then to have conversations with, with a teacher, with a, a building principal, with school district leadership. And I'm really confident that we can, we can find common ground and ways to ensure that everybody gets their needs met through a process like that. And if we're in a situation where we find a lot of parents are going through that, that local process and not having their needs met, then I think we can talk about legislation or, or going, you know, into um, broader conversations than that. But right now, I would say that school districts in Iowa are supposed to be locally controlled um, and parents are supposed to have that direct line of communication here and that that's probably where this belongs. Are you still hearing from people nationally about this issue or has it died down? It's dying down. Um, I do continue to hear from people who maybe are are they, they live outside of the state or out of the community, but have local connections. The people who have local connections are still interested in the conversation. But aside from that, um, honestly, once we got to the New York Times article, the reaction has been largely supportive and positive here. Bridget Exman with the Mason City, Iowa School District. We appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks for having me. And you're watching About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Well, each week, dozens of new books are published. Here's a few. Historian and professor Edward Ayers is out with his latest book. This one focused on the early decades of 19th century America. It's entitled American Visions, the U.S. 1800 to 1860. Mr. Ayers is the former president of the Organization of American Historians and has previously won the Bancroft Prize for American History Writing. Also, Hilary Mantel, the best-selling author of the Wolf Hall Trilogy, has released a new book about her life, family, and the idea of legacy. It's titled A Memoir of My Former Self, a Life in Writing. And Pulitzer Prize winner David Leonhardt has released Ours Was the Shining Future. The book explores the history of the American dream and how it has been impacted by the modern U.S. economy. And finally, we want to tell you about the book Big Fiction. It's written by Emory University's Dan Sinekin, and it analyzes how conglomeration in the publishing industry has changed fiction writing and what it means to be an author. Well, also each week brings new book reviews. Here's a sampling. The Wall Street Journal took a look at conflict, the evolution of warfare from 1945 to Ukraine by retired General David Petraeus and author Andrew Roberts. The Wall Street Journal's reviewer, Jonathan Jordan, called the book, quote, remarkably readable. Mr. Roberts' engaging prose softens the edges of Mr. Petraeus's straight shooting analysis, 
Conflict is the best one-volume study of conventional warfare in the nuclear age. It sets a new benchmark in understanding modern war. Another review. Janet Hook of the Los Angeles Times takes a look at Atlantic political writer McKay Coppins' new book about the life and political career of Mitt Romney. Mr. Coppins gained extraordinary access to Romney's private journals, texts, and emails, and was granted hours of interviews with Romney over two years, Janet Hook writes. Many readers will come for the juicy scoops and score settling, but the book also tries to do something more important. Coppins raises probing questions about how much Republicans like Romney were complicit in the rise of Donald Trump. Now, that book comes just weeks after Senator Romney announced that he won't seek re-election in 2024. Now, the books we just talked about in reviews and new releases, you can watch for them in the near future on Book TV. Well, coming up, it's our weekly Afterwards program. This week, Martin Barron talks about his leadership at the Washington Post under the ownership of Jeff Bezos and during the presidency of Donald Trump. He was interviewed by NPR's David Folkenflik. Here's a preview. What I wrote about was my own personal experience with him, what I personally observed at the Washington Post, his, his ownership, his, his, uh, his management of the, of the place, and of me and other people on the staff. And so, um, you know, I mean, uh, certainly he has huge commercial interests. I mean, there's no doubting that. And he's a controversial figure for a variety of reasons, from labor practices at Amazon to intrusions into privacy to their lobbying efforts in Washington. You name it, their whole range of things. So, um, and it was our duty to investigate all that, of course, uh, and to continue doing so despite his ownership. Even so, uh, my experience was that he um, uh, he was going to going to give us our independence and did give us our independence uh, completely. He said at his first uh, meeting with the staff in a town hall meeting uh, that we could cover him and cover Amazon any way we'd liked uh, without any interference on his part. And uh, he reiterated that on several occasions to me. Uh, and that's exactly what we did. Uh, we certainly put it to the test. We covered aggressively issues at Amazon. We covered aggressively, um, you know, all aspects of that company and of him, his own personal life when he got divorced and had a, you know, had an affair and um, you name it. Um, and he did this uh, while coming under tremendous pressure from um, Donald Trump who was, was initially the presidential candidate and then president, uh, clearly, I would say, the most powerful person in the world, and was who was regularly attacking Jeff Bezos and seeking to undermine his, his business um, and the, clearly the primary source of his wealth. So, um, and he stood by us uh, throughout the whole time. He never, he never caved. Uh, he never submitted to that pressure. Uh, he didn't interfere in our in our in the content of our coverage in any way, even when it was about Amazon, when it was about himself. Uh, in no instance did he did he interfere in the coverage. And a reminder that Afterwards airs every Sunday night at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Well, thanks for joining us for About Books, a program and podcast produced by C-SPAN's Book TV. Book TV will continue to bring you publishing news and new author programs. And a reminder that you can get this podcast on our C-SPAN Now app, and you can watch all Book TV programs anytime online at booktv.org.